What's that, Mick? Sorry, Elsie just did an eye-bleeding fart. Horrific. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 163 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I fashioned aircon for rats. Deliberate rats, obviously. Pet rats. Out of what? So, they're in the cage. I get an ice pack and I put that on top of their cage and then you get a bigger bowl and put it over the top of the ice pack and the airflow goes cool into their cage and they love it. Jen, are you trying to work out whether we could do that in your flat? Yes, yes I am. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've been on a train again. How was it? It was weird uh-huh. and the the truly weird thing about it was how quickly it became completely and utterly normal. Mm, it's really yeah. strange, isn't it? I did the same on a bus, not last week, the week before. I was like quite nervous about going on a bus. And then I was like, hey, I'm on a bus. <laughs> Just like all nerves had gone. I really love buses. Buses are all right. In London anyway, they put things up saying don't sit here and whatever. Whereas on the tube, it's just like a free-for-all. Sit where you like. And I'm Jen Offord and last week I was cheese-shamed. What fucker, Jen? Tell me. (laughs) Well, I went to have my second Covid jab last week, as you know, and I was anticipating feeling a bit rough afterwards and I was right to anticipate that, it transpired. Anyway, so on my way home, I went to... A well-known high-end cheese shop in Angel, let's call it Schmeel's Yard. <laughs> thought, I'm in the market for some, like, good cheese, right, for tomorrow in case I'm in a situation where I'm convalescing. So I went in <laughs> cheese there. Cheese emergency. Went in there, cheese like, bold as fucking brass, was like, hey guys, I'm here to buy cheese, let's have some <laughs> cheese. And there, and it wasn't like received very well. They sort of were a bit like, huh? and um, so I was like, so what? Like, what? What do you recommend? Because I like to do that in a cheese shop. I like to try new things, right? <laughs> Did they say, madam, this is a sex shop? <laughs> <laughs> no. Had you forgotten your glasses? No. <laughs> I went into a sex shop once by accident because I meant to go to my dentist, which was n- next door. That's what they all said. I, I, I don't believe any attention. of what you That's just what they all said. apart from the sex shop bit. <laughs> oh, honest to God, that my dentist, sorry, I've interrupted your story. My dentist next to a sex shop and I had a nightmare park in the car and I was really late and they fine you and all sorts for NHS dentists. And I just ran into the door because they were both doors that came off of the same of a same major entrance. And I just suddenly thought, no, this isn't the dentist. Anyway, so I was like, <laughs> I was like, OK, so sell me, sell me cheese, basically. I'm here to buy cheese. Sell it to me. And they're both a bit like, mm, whatevs. And I was like, okay, well, what's, what's your favourite cheese? Like, what, what would you recommend? What's your favourite cheese? Like, they made me work really, really hard. And I was mm-hmm. like, sell me cheese. And they both failed to sell me cheese. They were kind of like, oh, yeah, maybe that one. Don't really know. And I was just like, well, okay, do, all right. Do you, have a, do you have a really, like, tangy cheddar? And they're like, oh, yeah. maybe this one. It's, like, salty. And I was like... They've got the dream job, right, I of working know. surrounded by cheese all day. They can't even be fucking bothered to learn stuff about I cheese. Know. It makes me sick. Exactly. And then, so basically, in the end, I just went, all right, well, um, I'll think about it then, and left, sad, with no cheese. Cheeseless. Cheeseless, <laughs> and feeling like Julia Roberts when she goes to Rodeo Drive in Pretty <laughs> Woman, right? And I want to go back there with, like, a glove of high-end goat's cheese and tell them, like, they've made a big mistake. Huge. <laughs> Fuckers. 
I used to work surrounded by cheese, and I understand why you do think it's the dream job uh, uh, on a deli counter, no. just in case we're going back to Hannah's fucking sex shop. I know, I know why you say it's a dream job, but the smell is very hard to wash out of your hair. No, I can imagine it's, um, yeah, it's like, mm. don't meet your heroes kind of thing. Later on, Hannah and I chat with Georgia Pritchett, multi-award-winning screenwriter of some top-level telly. I'm talking Veep, Succession, The Thick of It, and more. And we talk about why feelings are like pickled eggs, the weight to write with other women, and why Roman Roy wanking off in a bathroom while Jerry Kelman tells him he's a rotten little nothing was the TV romance we all needed. Oh, shit, yeah. I've just started watching um, Succession, by the way, so... Um... Oh, spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> Old boss and toss is coming. I caught up with three-fifths of the Henley Mermaids to talk about their epic swimming challenge. And just for the listeners, they are actual mermaids. No, yeah, it was difficult, that interview, but, you know... We... <laughs> and will it be all the President's Men gate in this week's Rated or Dated? But first... Reverse ferrets, original heroes, and no sex please, we're Olympians. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're celebrating Freedom Day. And if anyone is wondering what that is, it's a pilot scheme to solve the global pandemic by simply declaring it's over <laughs> with this song. Come on, Jen. Strong, strong Britain, Britain great nation, nation, strong, strong. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lack of enthusiasm for a reason there. I think, well, at least twelve reasons probably. <laughs> so let's stick with what has been termed Freedom Day. Then I'll start with a quick reminder that lockdowns and subsequent restrictions weren't, despite conspiracy theorists mouth frothing about curbing civil liberties, but instead about saving lives and protecting the NHS during a global pandemic that has killed millions of people. Still, here we are. Strong England's free. <laughs> no. So let's take a quick look at what the official NHS COVID app is saying to me today. I'm quoting, most COVID-19, brackets, coronavirus, who still needs to know that bit? I've come out of the quote. Close brackets, legal restrictions have been lifted in England, including in E17. You can still catch and spread COVID-19, even if you are fully vaccinated. You can continue to protect yourself and others by following the latest advice. Grand smashing call, call, what is the latest advice? For England, it's basically, and I am paraphrasing here, have a free-for-all, but use your noggin. As in, people should continue to meet others outside where possible. People working from home are encouraged to return to the workplace gradually. And businesses, such as nightclubs, it's never going to not be funny that people keep talking about nightclubs. When did you last go to a nightclub, Jen? Oh my God, I don't even know, but my dad says nightclubs. I probably last went to a nightclub when people were still calling them nightclubs, I don't know. That's a fair answer. Well, businesses such as nightclubs and large events are being encouraged to use the NHS COVID pass to check people are fully vaccinated. They're encouraged, but they don't legally have to do so. And before we'd even got to Freedom Day, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Chancellor Rishi Sunak found themselves in self-isolation a week and a bit, having had contact with <laughs> Health Secretary Sajid Javid, who then tested positive for corona. Seriously, you couldn't make this shit up. That's right, Sajid, I'm Health Secretary now, let's open things up immediately. Javid pretty much immediately got the virus. What is it with these Tory spuff weasels that the next one in always makes the one before look better? Come back, bumbling cupboard fondler Matt Hancock. You have never looked so good. And 
<laughs> and the spaff weasels have once again been reverse ferreting. No sooner had Johnson claimed that, rather than self-isolating, like the 1.7 million people pinged by apps, he and Sunak would be out and about conducting, quote, essential government business with daily rapid testing. Oh, hang on, scratch that. Less than three hours later, it turned out Johnson and Sunak would be self-isolating after all, with one Whitehall source suggesting the Chancellor put pressure on Number 10 to back down. Quote, Sunak knew how this would go down with businesses, which are having to shut because their staff are being pinged, the source said. No shit, mate. And it is also worth remembering that not all self-isolation is created equally. We can't all just sod off to checkers if test and trace tells us we have to go no contact. And I don't just mean less space and no staff to sort your dinner. There is still no financial help for people who, if they don't go to work, can't, you know, feed the kids, pay the rent. So to summarise, Freedom Day means we are now relying on 55.98 million people's individual moral compasses to get <laughs> us through a global pandemic. <laughs> Brilliant. I'd also add, there's a pretty basic tenet that a lot of people seem to have forgotten in the rush to get to that nightclub. And that is the difference between freedom to and freedom from. So yeah, as of this week, everyone in England has the freedom to go to nightclubs. But we do not have freedom from a pandemic. And freedom without both is no freedom at all. Yes, well, as you know, Mickey, I was one of the people, one of the 1.7 million people to be pinged by the NHS app and told to self-isolate for three days. And I I would have fucking loved to self-isolate at Checkers this weekend. <laughs> I honestly, like, Did you try asking? Just give him a bell. Uh, could I come? No, it's it's ridiculous. And the, the, the app is so, so, so flawed. And and the thing is, right, I don't I don't want to do a down on it because if, if it doesn't rely on like everyone's own individual moral compass and if everyone did have the app and if all things were created equally, it would work. But it would only work if we were all doing a couple of lateral flow tests at home mm-hmm. every week. Which is what we should be doing. And then we potentially would get on top of this and also i don't feel like we've talked enough about to add insult to injury the grossest testing process of, <laughs> of all things that you have to stick something on your tonsil and then up your nose it's grim do you not but, do it the other way oh no that'll be i don't know which is worse i don't know which is worse. i think no i think you have to do it don't you do you not is there not on oh i don't know i've always been doing it the way it's suggested which is tonsil first nose no second but yeah no that's what we need to be doing we all need to be actually just testing ourselves on the off chance. Otherwise, none of this works. What's Dalston like? Walthamstow is pretty good. They post us lateral flow tests, so we have like a stash. No, yeah. you have to go to a chemist and ask for them, which is what I do because my daughter is in nursery, so I feel some sort of vague moral obligation to actually check if I have COVID. And the other thing to say, this morning, Boris Johnson, you know, just be cautious or whatever... What, what are you mean? what are you talking about when you're saying we're open again it's all systems go be cautious that's it, it it makes no sense it's literally counter to what you're doing it's it's so that when if let's try and stay positive it's so that if it all goes tits up again tits up seems like a very dismissive way to talk about people dying i don't mean it like that but if it does all go tits up again then it's our fault we weren't careful enough they told us they told us we were like you're like you can go out to nightclubs again but you've got to be careful i've never been careful in a fucking nightclub yeah it's completely nonsensical ending up in a nightclub is a signifier of not being careful 
quite now mick do you remember the stories from the 2012 olympics about how the sexy time app grinder buckled <laughs> under the pressure of the influx of hot bods in the athletes village i do but i'm enjoying hearing it again or how they had to bring in extra condoms to meet the demands of the off-duty olympians i prefer the term sheath but yes <laughs> stratford has literally never seen such time. i don't know the train station's always really busy <laughs> Well, spare a thought for this year's hopefuls currently en route to or already in Japan, looking like the only thing they're likely to share a sweaty night with over the next couple of weeks is a fever and or new continuous dry cough. With the first positive COVID test already returned in the athletes village and eight members of GB's athletics team alone, six athletes and two staff already in self-isolation as we record this on Monday, Get set to watch that number soar. I think it might be a bit higher than that by Wednesday, but we shall see. Do you think it'll be a world record, Jen? (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong when you're flying an estimated 79,000 people Mm. in from around the world into Tokyo in the middle of a global pandemic, huh? Mm Mm-hmm nothing so perhaps it is a good thing that the organizers commitment to clean energy and recycling has spawned if you'll excuse the pun Uh. the so-called i know anti-sex bed for athletes who are attending the games i had one of those for about six years i didn't i didn't mean it to be an (laughs) anti-sex bed just happened when i was in my second year at university my bed was an actual camp bed so all i'm going to say is like people find ways but anyway (laughs) the beds which are made of cardboard actual cardboard if you look at a picture of it I've, to be honest i've never seen anything less sexy than this bed and the tweet from the olympics the ioc is something like the, the things dreams are made of or something like that <laughs> cardboard it's, cardboard yes, dreams that's all we've got left Jen. <laughs> so they can support up to 200 kilograms of weight which is quite a lot but you know you're already in trouble there if you're at the heavier end of the judo spectrum that's true. yeah more problematic perhaps for anyone wanting to participate in the horizontal hokey-cokey, is that the beds will not withstand, and I quote, sudden movements or celebrations. <laughs> not even a thumbs up. Thank you. Nor should they be jumped on, according to an article on entrepreneur.com. Nonetheless, as has been the case since the 1988 Seoul Olympics, a mere 160,000 condoms will be distributed to competitors, though the organisers state the intention behind this is that athletes take them back to their countries of origin and spread the message of safe sex rather than covid okay there's like there's loads to go out here but i cannot believe someone who reversed the sex as the horizontal hokey cokey has managed to make a baby jen would you have preferred rumpy pumpy uh what did my mum call it a damn good rogering i was like oh i never need Bloody to hear hell. that again <laughs> i know right <laughs> I did actually know someone who was asked by a man if they wanted to go back for some rumpy pumpy and I believe that they weren't the the man in question was not being ironic wowzers that's not how to refer to the sweet sweet act of physical lovemaking you're never having sex with that man are you I mean you're not you're married but like anyway we digress rumpy pumpy but no no olympic rumpy pumpy no that's it it's gone over poor bastards that's where you go isn't it is it? I thought, that, it, yeah. I thought it was to to show the world you're, you know, at your physical peak and that you're an incredible exactly. human. Oh, wow. Okay. Exactly. The world. Jen, I've got questions for off air about what you were doing on that camp bed. I just mean, you know, like you're at the height of your physical whatever. I imagine you're having a lovely time. Aren't you supposed you to, to keep like... Time? 
your yin yang to like for more energy so that you I can... mean after you've done it obviously like you've you've you know once you've done your your event oh, okay. and you're free as a bird I think probably the wider point is that it's probably a bit of a shit time to go to the Olympics compared to previous Olympics yeah what Jen's Rumpy, saying Rumpy is or no. more sheaths please <laughs> would you like some good news Mick yes please Almost 50 years on from Billie Jean King's famous Battle of the Sexes match against Bobby Riggs, which she won in three sets, by the way, her work as part of the so-called Original Nine has been honoured by the Tennis Hall of Fame. Alongside Peaches Barkovitz, Rosie Carcel, Julie Heldman, Christy Pigeon, best name. That's an excellent... Though, I mean, it's quite a few good names, so to stand out among that list, but uh, Christy Pigeon, that's great. Nancy Ritchie, Valerie Ziegenfuss... Julie Dalton and Kerry Melville-Reed. King is part of the first group ever to be inducted into the Hall of Fame for their work promoting gender equality in the professional game. King, Casals and Ritchie are already inducted as individuals. So, a very simplified history lesson for those who don't know. The original nine made the headlines by boycotting a planned event in 1970 which could only accommodate eight female players and went it alone as an all-women group of nine players and ultimately established the Women's Tennis Association Tour in a quest for equal prize money. So, congratulations to them all. Yes, they aced it. Boom. Mm-hmm. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when... Oh, hang on. Sorry, I just need to do something. Come on, Jen. Give us a smile. Might never happen. Oh, yep. That has not worked, listeners. (laughs) So, yeah, the old smile command, mostly issued by men to women. I have lost count of the number of times a bloke I don't know has tried to take control of my face. It might seem like small beer. I mean, smiling is lovely, but the reverberations are pretty big. A 2019 survey found that 98% of women have been told to smile at work at some point in their lives by a male superior, with 15% saying it happens weekly, if not more often. The implication there being that being pleasant in this way could help them get on. Oh, fuck off. It also normalises the idea that women's bodies are public property and therefore fair game for comment and instruction from strangers. And this isn't big and it isn't clever and I am repeating myself, but oh fuck off. And that's before I even get on to how some men take it when you politely or otherwise decline their demand. Jen, I'm accepting guesses on how I might choose to say no. (laughs) funny you should say that because the last time someone told me to smile I did say to them oh fuck off and they look quite affronted to be honest and a bit surprised I'm team Jen on that one absolutely so yeah it'll probably not surprise you to learn that this kind of sexist nonsense has been going on for centuries and so in a right old turnabout for sexism of the week I was delighted by the following bit of news Restoration work by English Heritage on a 17th, possibly 16th century painting has wiped the smile off the face of a female Dutch vegetable seller. Why? Because the original had a looking enigmatic, sans smile, with the upturned mouth added at some point in the last 400 years when a restorer presumably decided she needed to cheer up love. Alice Tate Hart, English Heritage's collections conservator, said the results were a revelation, adding, She looks a lot more confronting, I think, more serious. I've seen the restoration, not in person, on a photo, and she looks busy selling veg is what? 
good on her. <laughs> I like that a lot. You know, I think about this quite a lot, and the thing that makes me so angry about it is basically it's like men want us to walk around as their societal fluffers, making them feel nice because we might fuck them. That's what it is, basically. <laughs> oh, do fuck off. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Georgia Pritchett, multi-award winning screenwriter of top deck telly, including Veep, Succession, The Thick of It and Miranda, and author of a cracking new memoir, My Mess is a Bit of a Life. Georgia, hello. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. I'm also joined... You're excited. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm also joined by our Hannah Dunleavy, who obviously had to be involved in a chat about telly with a woman integral to at least two of her favourite shows. Hannah, hello. Hello. Also, Georgia, in your book, you have penned the line, feelings are like pickled eggs, best left unopened, no matter how drunk you are. So I think you two might actually be the same person. (laughs) <laughs> push them down push, push them, them down. down yes exactly bury them deep deep down under some kind of volcano where nothing <laughs> can go wrong we are going to start with a succession question georgia in your interview with the independent they pressed you pretty hard for you to name a favorite character and you you landed on roman which is beautiful news for hannah yeah. <laughs> Also, just the correct answer. Absolutely. (laughs) So I want to ask you something about Jerry and Roman. (laughs) That relationship, which actually starts in the episode that you wrote, Safe House, is one of the most weird and wonderful things to happen (laughs) on TV for years. And I'm curious as to what your first reaction was when you heard that idea. Did you instinctively think, yes, this is going to work? Well, I mean, to me, it's one of the greatest romances of modern TV. I don't I you know. <laughs> I don't know people who like Poldark, whatever. But, you know, <laughs> for me, someone jerking off in a bathroom is the most romantic thing I can think of. <laughs> I mean, I love all the characters. I, I do have a soft spot for the dirty pixie. And he... We, I suppose when we were thinking about the characters, you know, it's when I was first asked to write for the show, I kind of thought, mm, I don't know if I want to write about a lot of rich white men who are ruining our world. But actually, it's been kind of a really exciting challenge as a writer to sort of dig deep into their psyches and, and try and find a, a little speck of compassion for them and try and sort of hopefully get the viewers to kind of feel some sympathy for them occasionally before they remember what monsters they are and I think with Roman we just thought this is a deeply damaged man oh hello dog my Elsie dog is having a little woof because someone's at the door (laughs) it's very like Noel's house party at my place (laughs) I think Elsie's agreeing with me that um, Roman is yeah He's not capable of a healthy, loving relationship and any sort of form of intimacy that we may recognise. So we just thought he didn't really have a mum and he's desperate for affection and what sort of weird way would that express itself. So the um, relationship in heavy quotation marks with Jerry is kind of what we came up with. Bravo. It seems fitting, but we're going to go back to those pickled eggs. Because (laughs) when it comes to talking about your feelings, Georgie, you usually, and I'm using your turn of phrase here, mince around the bush. 
but my mess is a bit of a life is a whole book about them and now I'm going to ask you about them did you not think this through (laughs) I didn't I didn't no when my agent suggested I write a memoir I told her in no uncertain circumstances that the one thing we could be quite sure of is that I would never ever write a memoir okay that's worked out really well (laughs) the end of it (laughs) yeah so now yeah I'm furious heads will roll yeah I don't quite know what happened I think it was some a sort of moment of lockdown madness when I was lonely and desperate for human connection and yes I am terrible about talking about my feelings and as you say now that I've written about them which is marginally easier people keep asking me to talk about them and I think I've been very clear I've written a whole book (laughs) explaining that I can't okay so it might be an obvious question but you've spent nearly 30 years writing characters was it really hard to put your actual self into the center of things it was it was really hard yeah I mean I think for someone sort of socially inadequate and emotionally unevolved then the the dream (laughs) is to put your words in other people's mouths and sort of express your feelings by stealth and sort of you know there's you know bits of me in all the characters I write so to suddenly write something about me in a direct way is horrifying I love that there's a bit of you jerking off in that bathroom. That's great. That's basically what you <laughs> said. If this was print, yeah. that would be the headline. <laughs> I, I mean, I absolutely smashed your book into my eyes. It is such a joy to read, which seems a bit odd to say that it, it covers sexism, assault, miscarriages, non-neurotypical diagnoses for both your kids, suspected terminal cancer in your partner, as well as the ongoing, almost crippling anxiety you've suffered since day dot. Loads of this is heartbreaking, but it, it's very, very funny. <laughs> Has laughter <laughs> yes. always been what's got you through? Definitely. I think it's it's a great coping strategy. And as I say, if, if you just don't want to undo those pickled eggs, then the <laughs> classic way is to just mock yourself for your own suffering. That seems to be, is that not healthy? I don't understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, just kind of give yourself a hard time about any problems you're facing. It seems, well, that's my go-to method. I have to agree when the worst thing happened to me when I had the worst three four months of my life about five years ago I just kept saying to people my go-to was one day I'm going to turn this into a sitcom because it's actually hilarious (laughs) yeah (laughs) it was weirdly hilarious to be at the worst point of my life yeah yeah I think life is you know a better joke writer than I could ever be and you got to appreciate what it throws at you sometimes just you know in terms of the world you know when I was writing Veep and we had you know this fictional president who was venal horrible selfish ruthless monster but she had a sense of shame and she was punished when she did things wrong and then suddenly overnight Trump became president and our show which we'd thought was a wild exaggeration (laughs) was just completely and appropriately trumped (laughs) and you know suddenly our fictional president seemed very quaint and old-fashioned in that in that she did have shame and that you know she was kind of punished for her wrongdoings and that's just an example of when you think oh yeah life's life's got a much better plot here and as I watched those four years unfold I just sort of marveled at 
the kind of twists and turns and then you know of course finishing up with the absolutely perfect punchline of Rudy Giuliani holding a press conference for Four Seasons Total Landscaping next to a pawn shop. I was just like, well, I'm hanging up my pen because I would never have thought of that. That's just genius. So, yeah, by your own admission, and as you've written it all down in My Mess is a Bit of a Life, you're over-anxious, a bit neurotic, and, you know, the word self-deprecating doesn't even touch the sides, and yet you have written some dick-swinging, almost utterly irredeemable (laughs) shite-hawks. How does that work? I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's amazing what's inside yourself isn't it because I remember when I was asked to write for the thick of it and you know to write some um, a big kind of rant of Malcolm Tucker's I remember thinking very primly oh I, I won't know enough swear words but lo and behold only seconds later just this barrage of filth was pouring <laughs> out of me and I felt very purged and zen at the end of it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's surprising what's, what is inside when you give it a chance to get out. That was, that was very cathartic. I've got a question about swearing, so that links nicely to that. Um, <laughs> okay. You work mostly in America now, and Americans... I thought you were going to say mostly in swearing, which is also... <laughs> But Americans don't, as a rule, enjoy the cursing as much as we do, even on HBO. So working on shows like Succession and Veep in particular, where the insults are just really thick and fast, did those restrictions on swear words turn out to be a blessing? Do you think we're sometimes too quick to go to fuck here when there's actually something way more smart and elaborate and vicious we could be saying? Yeah, I must say, actually, HBO didn't restrict us at all. I think that was a a challenge we put on ourselves, that we thought we don't just want to have people saying fuck off or just insulting each other in a straightforward way. We want to kind of use quite baroque swearing and quite sort of imaginative, ornate insults. So that was entirely our own doing, and I think the sort of higher the stakes and the more you hate someone the more imaginative your insults get and so we just enjoyed that part of the language and I think it's fun isn't it and when I was little my nan said to me don't swear it's not big and it's not clever and now I want to say nan guess what (laughs) it is clever (laughs) I've made a career out of it so uh, yay for swearing there's so many things from Veep that I actually just use in my ordinary life. I think Defcon fuck is still my favourite <laughs> thing anybody ever said in here. There are two stories I want to bounce off there. It's really hard to pick one, but one is uh, when your son drew a rainbow. Could you possibly share that on the podcast? <laughs> yes. So I let my children draw on the backs of my old scripts and so when my son was about four he drew this lovely rainbow for his teacher Um, and so we took it in to give to her and she kind of looked at it and then she noticed there was writing on the other side and she turned the page over and there was this whole Malcolm Tucker diatribe (laughs) of just most (laughs) eye-watering obscenities that any Montessori teacher has probably come across. Um, and, yeah, she definitely looked at me in a whole different light after that. 
And there's one that bounces really neatly into talking about women in writers' rooms, or indeed the lack of women in writers' rooms. And it happened in the UK. So Hannah had said there about how like the Americans don't really like the cursing. But when you were working on Smack the Pony, they were the ones that restricted like how many times you could like have fuck in a series, not just in an episode. Uh, yes. There was a really interesting way they thought you could get around that. <laughs> yes. So this was a sort of Channel 4 rule, and obviously this is a while ago now I'm not I'm not up to date with what their swearing quotas are at the moment but but we had a a swearing quota so you could sort of use two in one episode and then five in another it didn't have to be the same amount but we we got through our swearing quota I think after about two episodes and then we were in a lot of trouble and we had a sketch where someone called someone else uh motherfucker and they said no, you, you can't. And we said, oh, please, we re- like we really, it really is important. <laughs> so they got sort of passed up to increasingly senior um, people at Channel Four to decide. And they came back with the decision that we couldn't say motherfucker, but instead we could say sisterfucker. <laughs> that well expletive. And I just found it very interesting that they'd taken the word motherfucker and thought, hmm, what's the offensive part of this word? <laughs> Mother, let's get rid of that. I mean, that's gained traction, uh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> what was staggering to me, and I'm a bit annoyed with myself for being staggered by it, but is the fact that it wasn't until 25 years into your writing career when you got that job writing on Veep in America that you, the first time you found yourself writing with another woman. I know. And it sort of surprised me how overwhelming that was because I love all the writers I work with. They're fantastic men. It's quite a small community. You know, we're very good friends. They, You know, they're great. I did kind of wonder you know where where are the other women as I'd sometimes ask them you know where are they and they'd say oh you know you're a trailblazer and I'd say well I'm I'm whatever the opposite of a trailblazer is because literally no one's following I'm somehow repelling (laughs) I'm making it look so awful that no one wants to follow in my footsteps so for the first four seasons of Beep it was British written and then when Armando left it moved to becoming an American produced and written show and so suddenly there was like an, a real huge American writers room with lots of absolutely incredible American writers and there were two women there and I it sounds silly but it was so pathetically validating to sit opposite people who looked a bit like me dressed a bit like me had kind of similar frames of reference and similar sort of experience or attitudes and it just it just bowled me over and and it just made me think oh that this is what it's like to be a white man every single minute of every day when you walk in any room or turn on the telly or do anything you just see yourself reflected back at you and that's so lovely it really makes you feel good about yourself and really that's sort of that combined with the fact that commissioners over there seem to be much more forgiving about my chromosomes and the fact that I insist on being relentlessly female <laughs> means I do mainly work over there because it's just because a I they give me work b I get to work with other women and of course you know if 
things are being written by women, you tend to have more more female characters in them and more interesting ones. So I also get to write for more interesting female characters. So that the trifecta, it's irresistible to, to work over in the States. I'm sort of, I think of myself as a kind of comedy refugee, as it were. Um, yeah, because it's so much harder over here. It's just such a shame that women don't watch telly in the UK. I know, I know. And that there are no women, that there's just men. No women at all. But on that note, you're working on a new TV comedy in the US with JLD that will feature a cast of 19 yes. women. We're genuinely very giddy. So one, oh. can you tell us anything about it? Because I know it's really early days. But two, do you think this show would get greenlit in the UK? I don't think it would, no, <laughs> because every single broadcaster has said, oh, no, we've already got something with women in. So, yeah, I can't tell you much, and that's very irritating, I know, but I will be killed. And, <laughs> no, we don't want that. But it's, it's funny. It's a comedy, but with a real message, and it's just so exciting to think of... There's going to be sort of British and American actors in it so it's so exciting to just think of the funniest women that I've worked with and think oh I could put everyone into this amazing thing and it will be such fun. Hannah I think if you want to do a little JLD loving we've got a tiny bit of time. Oh my (laughs) god I love her. (laughs) Mickey sent me a quote that you'd written about her where you said that she was the greatest comedy performer of her generation and I wholeheartedly agree with that I think she's fantastic. But also, I kind of love her on a personal level. And she had breast cancer at exactly the same time my mum had breast cancer. Um, and she just dealt with it so incredibly that um, I have all sorts of mad respect for her on that level as well. Yes, yes. I try and sort of take some reflected glory by claiming that I held her coat while she beat breast cancer. <laughs> <laughs> no one's thanking me for that so far. But, um, yeah, she was incredible, wasn't she? She... Uh... Yeah, she she had to sort of do it publicly and that can't have been easy, but she, she did it. Yeah, she, just yeah. little things like she had a photograph of her hair when it was really short and it was really grey and she put it out there, which was really helpful, I think, yeah. to women yeah. who who can be quite horrified by what they look like when their hair first starts to grow back. They've never seen themselves yeah. look like that before, yeah. And also, you know, this is obviously um, much more sort of relevant in the States, but, you know... She she was at pains to make the difference between someone like her who can afford yeah. treatment, who has health care, and for all those women in the States who who don't have that. And that's just such a terrible situation. Um, and she really made that a, a very significant point of all her posts, which I thought was wonderful. Yeah. So, Georgia, aside from what you're doing with JLD, you're working on loads of exciting stuff right now. I don't even know how you're cramming it in, as well as doing events to publicise your brilliant book. So where can people find out more about what you're up to, please? Well, do you mean TV-wise? Or Whatever you're up to. Like, is there yes. a, a website or a Twitter handle you want people? No, I should. I Oh, yes, I am on Twitter and Instagram, Georgia Pudding. I'm doing lots of exciting tv stuff at the moment i just finished filming something that was a podcast i don't know if you listen to it called the shrink next door that was this fantastic kind of documentary podcast about this true story about a man who goes to see a psychiatrist and how very very wrong that goes and that was really exciting because uh will ferrell played the patient 
and he I mean obviously he's hilarious mm-hmm. but my mission in life is to suck the joy out of every situation <laughs> I encounter so I was trying not to let him be funny and I was to kept saying to him this is a tragedy this is really serious <laughs> and he does deliver an incredibly moving performance it's really heartbreaking um he's such a good actor I hadn't really appreciated I've been so busy laughing at him I hadn't really sort of noticed what a brilliant actor he was and then playing the psychiatrist is Paul Rudd and again that's great because he's kind of playing against type he's normally the hero and in this he's kind of not a very good person Um, but what he is a bit dark but what's so good is that I think I mean it was interesting when I approached it we'd all sort of just come out of this abusive relationship with Trump and that was kind of quite an inspiration really because this relationship between patient and therapist is like any abusive relationship and there are great times and then there are terrible times and then just as you're beginning to think I don't want this anymore he'll do something wonderful and charming and make you so happy so it was it was really interesting kind of rather than approaching it as a kind of story of a goodie and a baddie approaching it as a story of like almost like a marriage or some sort of relationship that starts really well and then you kind of ignore the warning signals and sort of get swept along and the next thing you know it's 27 years later and you've sort of lost a third of your life to someone who was toxic and didn't have your best interests at heart it's your first series as showrunner isn't it congratulations yes that's amazing oh goodness that was terrifying i know <laughs> responsibility and all oh, conflict and things ah horrible georgia i could talk to you all day like I've, I've barely touched the surface on what's in your book and i know hannah could just talk about like three seconds of succession for at least a week so <laughs> thank you so so much for joining us oh thank you it's such a pleasure so lovely to meet you both i'm a huge fan of the podcast keep up the good work Oh, well, that's made both our days. (laughs) I'm going to go and ring my brother. (laughs) You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. On the 22nd of July, five self-identified middle-aged ladies, in inverted commas, will set off in relay format to swim across the Bristol Channel at its widest point, which is 25 miles from Ilfracombe to Swansea. I'm joined by three of them, Laura Renecki, Hi. Joan Fennelly. Hi. And Susan Barry. Hi. And together you are three of the five Henley Mermaids. So... First of all, can I ask you, please, because 25 miles, that sounds quite hard, because swimming, you know, swimming is quite hard to do at at any pace. I do like a kind of mad sporting challenge. So, first of all, I'm going to ask you, why? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we get asked that quite a lot, and we all have a different answer to it. I'm not sure why. I don't actually enjoy the swims themselves particularly. They're very hard work, but... I can see the end goal and I like the training and all that side of it. But you're different again, Joan, aren't you? Last year we did the English Channel with the, the same team, the same format, you know, of uh, swimmer one, two, three, four and five. And we did the English Channel in on the 22nd of July last year. 
in 17 hours and 43 minutes. But I loved the, the, well, obviously the training and the preparation, but the camaraderie on the day, it was the best day of my life. I did, I, I'm, you know, I'm not married or I don't have children. So I don't have the, those, um, life experiences, uh, competing for, for the top accolade of the best day. But that was it for me, you know, I loved it. And, you know, we've a very special bond between the mermaids, sister bond, I would say. And, I think kind of a lot of people have stood back and kind of seen, well, here are five middle-aged women ranging in age from 58 down to 44. We don't particularly look athletic. Well, some of us don't. Some of us definitely don't. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I think, what can be achieved if you're in the, the, the right group where we kind of push and pull each other along and, uh, you know, in the water and out of the water as well with life's experiences, you know, good and bad. We laugh a lot and we we support each other through everything. We've all we've had this year we've had well COVID apart from anything else, we've had death of family members, we've had divorce, we've had oh everything you can think of and we we just turn up on each other's doorsteps and it's a mermaid mutual aid. It's twenty five miles and, and it's in a relay format. So how is that gonna work logistically? Susan, do you wanna tell me a bit about that? Well, it really works. We swim an hour each on a sort of rolling basis. So each person swims now, the next person gets in and so on. And you just keep repeating that until you get to your end destination, which is Swansea. During the hour, you know, you might swim a mile. You might swim four miles. miles. It all depends because obviously you've got currents either working against you or for you. So we could swim varying distances within each hour. Yeah. Channel swimming rules as well. So once you've got your relay rotation going, you order going, you have to stick to that same rotation. How many hours do you expect to swim each, roughly? Well, you know, if you look at the, on our website, you'll, you'll kind of see the tracker from when we did the English channel, you know, and after swimming five hours, each of us having done an hour, starting in the dark, daybreak rose, we looked behind and it was almost (laughs) like if you threw a stone, you would hit the white cliffs of Dover, you know? We just got dragged up the coast and then next six hours we got zoomed down towards the coast of France and then the next almost six hours battling through currents again to kind of get to the, the coast of France. So it could, we could do it in record time if the, we could be as quick as 15 hours. It yeah. could take us 25 hours. So we'll, even though it's at 25 miles, we're likely to cover a lot more ground than that. Um, yeah. you know, it could be an extra 10 miles or more, you know. I set my Garmin on one of the swims for the English Channel and I swam eight kilometres in one hour. Well, if I'd done that, I'd be like Michael Phelps at full belt. <laughs> you know, there's no way. <laughs> but the tide had obviously just taken me off. That hadn't even occurred to me. And the Bristol Channel has the second highest tidal range in the world. Bloody hell. Gosh, that, is hard. <laughs> that, is, that sounds... Really very hard. Harder than I'd even anticipated and and I already thought it sounded hard. So how have you been training for this? Obviously we all live in Henley, being the Henley mermaids, and we swim year-round in the Thames with just swimsuits and swim hats and goggles, yeah? So we're well acclimatised to the cold. At this time of year we're probably each swimming probably five times a week in the river and the water temperature is such that we will swim probably a minimum of probably a mile on any day. But, you know, on weekends in particular, we could do 
six. Six yeah. miles, up to six miles. So we, we've got the endurance and the fitness um, that way, and we kind of combine it as well. We have a number of ocean swim training sessions that we've scheduled in right up until July 22nd. So, And we do things like circuits and Pilates and hit classes and spin and cycling and weights and everything. Yeah. You have to know that your body can do what you're going to ask of it because it's all in your mind. You bloody have to if you're in the sea, don't you? Like, Christ. Well, when you're battling huge blooms of jellyfish, <laughs> yes. The hardest thing I ever did was a charity walk of 40 miles, right, in 24 hours. That is the hardest thing I've ever done because it is so much your brain. You know, when you're doing it all in one day and you know you can't stop until you get there and you've been on your feet for, like, 18 hours or something and you're just like, when will it end? When will it end? When can I lose this little toe that hurts so much now that the only thing I can reasonably do is just cut it off here and now? Yes. to end this pain i didn't do that don't worry i still have we, we have the same thing when we have to get back in the water yeah because when you're swimming through the night it gets really cold so you take all the, the four hours that you're on the boat feel, feels like one hour and it takes you that whole time to warm up and then you have to strip back down again get a cozy on and get back in and it's like oh no do, I have to? do you not wear like you're not gonna wear wetsuits or something not allowed no. to why it wouldn't be ratified as a proper swim channel swimming rules just swimsuit, swim hat and goggles, nothing else. So how do you do that? How do you make yourself do it? We'd never let each other down. You can't let somebody else take your place just because you can't face doing it. It has to be, I mean, it's your turn. You have to get in and do it. Otherwise, they challenge, they, they will just call it and that's it. The other dimension to that, though, Jen, is that, you know, we, we swim with the seasons. So, you know, we're swimming in the, the river and out of the sea in just swimsuits, is fine, yeah? But we'll kind of still be swimming, you know, come October, November, January. December, as the, 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 it gets colder. You're in for a shorter period of time, but your your body adjusts to temperature fluctuations from being high down to being very low in the depths of winter and then uh, rising again in, in spring and into summer, you know? So you're, you're quite acclimatized. It's a bit of a shock when you get in first and you have yeah. to control your breathing for the first one one minute probably and, and it depends all, really yeah. doesn't it? it depends how fast you set off and how tired you are or how how scared you are because it's choppy or there's loads of jellyfish it all depends it, it it's on what whether you've eaten properly before you get in everything you just try and find your rhythm you can't even stick to your proper technique because the waves are yeah. irregular mm. big small you, you you have to swim to survive. It's not a technique thing, really, when you're in there. Thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> I've looked at some of the pictures of when we did the English Channel. So with swimming, you know, you're meant to be really streamlined, you know. I see some of the pictures, you know, and my my legs are about five miles apart. You know, you kind of go, oh, no. <laughs> so in terms of distance, how does it compare to swimming the English Channel? It's five miles longer, but that's as the crow flies. The Bristol Channel, it's... You know, whereas there's a million and one people we can talk to who've done the English Channel. There's very few people we can talk to who've done the Bristol Channel. It's not a well-known, a well, what would I say, trodden path, no, really. Only four have done it previous to us. Oh, wow. We'll be the first all-female yes. relay team to do it. We have nothing to go up, but we don't know. The person ratifying our swim, though, has actually swum, swum it solo, so that will be quite... Yes, helpful, hopefully. Yeah, um, but we're, we're breaking new yeah, ground, you yeah, know? Yeah, we definitely are. <clears throat>
So can I ask you, because obviously you guys, as, as you said, you've you formed this camaraderie, you're the Henley Mermaids, you are a group, and you go out and you swim together. How did the Henley Mermaids form? How did you guys come to know each other? <laughs> it, we were a, a WhatsApp group, which we called ourselves the Henley Mermaids, uh, in order that we could swim, get always have somebody to swim with. So you'd put on the WhatsApp group, anyone want to swim tomorrow morning, 7am, at, at, you know, Aston or somewhere like that. And then it was somebody's idea to swim the English Channel, and I managed to persuade them all to do it. And then it sort of became, Henny Moments became more than just, a lot more, a lot more than just a WhatsApp group. We raised £36,000 last year for a charity that I run, actually, Henny Music School. And we also sort of campaigned for clean water and safe swimming and all that sort of thing. So it's grown into something more. So this year we're, we're working with raising funds and awareness for four conditions. So motor neuron, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, and multiple sclerosis. Yeah. So it started out that we were working with an Irish uh, organization that, that um, works with these four charities in Ireland. And then we, we decided we'd bring in the four sister British charities. So across those four conditions of MS, Huntington's, uh, motor neuron and Parkinson's, with four British, four Irish charities that we're raising funds and awareness for. And it's, again, the first time that apparently British and Irish charities have come together around one event, you know, which being uh, being the, the, the token Irish person in the team, I'm quite proud and really happy about, you know. But the, the cause kind of, I think, every one of us knows somebody who suffers with some of the, those conditions or have family members. And, you know, one of the, the girls, Fiona is a, a neurologically trained ICU nurse. So she works a lot at the, the Royal Barracks in, um, in Reading. So it's, it's a, a cause close to all of her hearts, really. I want to come back to this point because you are the first all-female swim team to undertake this challenge. And in the, in the press release I, I received, you self-identify as middle-aged ladies, which feels to me celebratory rather than derogatory which often sadly it is the latter and I, I just wanted to know how how you viewed it I think it's probably more to do with what your body can do rather than what it can't oh, being open water swimmers you're getting changed on the edge of a, a riverbank somewhere or a beach you know there are people who all shapes and sizes do open water swimming anybody can do it it's a very inclusive sport so nobody cares what you look like you, everybody sees you in a swimming costume you know, your boob might fall out when you're getting, you know, when you're getting changed. Nobody gives them monkeys. So it's, it's, it's really more about what your body can do. I mean, our bodies can swim a channel. Well, that's amazing. We might be a bit fat and podgy and old, but that's what we can do. So, you know, it's, it's far more about the positive side of body image rather than the negative. Just as well, because uh, the other day we were down training in Do uh, Dover, so we park up in a car park in Dover and here the five of us are trudging across um, Dover in our swimsuits, you know, <laughs> to go, you know. And we, we, one of us said, could you imagine doing this 10 years ago? <laughs> no, no way. You know, I think kind of with the benefit of maturity, in a way you give, you don't, don't give a that. toss really, no, no. you know. <laughs> uh, you, you just get on with it. And I think what's kind of captivated people about the mermaids is that we're just ordinary everyday girls, you know, in our... Well, one, two forties, and three of us in fifties. I nearly got a belt in the year there for that. But uh, <laughs> I think people relate to us, don't they? Is yeah, that we're just normal. Yeah. yeah, working women. 
none of us are county swimmers or anything like that. <laughs> There's no sort of um, no, no, none of us did swimming as children, particularly swimming. Um, I taught I taught myself front crawl about four yeah, years ago. Yeah, well, I've always dabbled in it, but most of us just got coached a couple of years ago on how to swim more ergonomically. But it's just we've built it up by degrees mm. over the years, you know. Because I agree with you, there's your body is, you know, generally speaking, so much more capable than than we give it credit for. And actually, you know, you have to try these things to to know that really. What would you say to someone who has listened to this today and, and maybe feels inspired to go and try a bit of open water swimming themselves, but they're a bit nervous, they're not sure? Just join just, a club. Just, yeah, join a club. Don't else. go on your own. Join yeah. a club and you will meet people from all walks of life all shapes and sizes and people you'd never normally get to meet. Wonderful people. There are people that swim to help their pain. There are swim to help their mental health. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very open, open-minded, inclusive thing to do. And people, people, some people just get in and bob around and chat. We do that sometimes when, when, we've, chat- when we've done our swim. We have a few chatty swims, heads up, breaststroke chat. A lot of people just bob around. Some people like to get fit and go, you know, swim up and back. There are all different levels in every club. Go on Facebook and there are some amazing swim communities on Facebook. Wild Swimming Ireland, I am a bit biased. The Outdoor Swimming Society, but you see the most amazing, picturesque, beautiful places that people swim Amazing. So can I ask you, can you tell me, please, have you guys got some sort of like social media page that we can follow and, and where can we donate if we would like to do so? Through our website, henleymermaids.com or we are on social media at Henley Mermaids on all platforms. There's two separate flags you would click on for this challenge, a British one and an Irish one because of various reasons you, they, you have to choose which one you pay into, whether it's euros or pounds. And yeah, you go straight into the Virgin Money giving or the... I donate. I donate. The, the, the tax rules around how charities are managed and, and all that is very different in Ireland to what it is in the UK. Yeah, so every euro gets split four ways between the Irish charities mm-hmm. and every pound sterling gets split four ways between the four British charities. A little competition there then, ladies. The Irish are doing pretty well. They are, say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joan, Laura and Susan, thank you so much for chatting to me and best of luck. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Joan. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film took me back in time to mini-mix deep love of 1980s TV show Crazy Like a Fox? <laughs> Did you used to watch it? I've never heard of that. I have no that. idea what it is. Crazy Like a Fox? Well, yeah, Jack Warden's in it and he plays uh, okay. Harry Fox, a detective crazy. who it on his own terms. And he is he's maverick, Jen, he's okay. maverick. A fox is crazy? This one was. His son was a lawyer and sort of nervy. And every week it'd start with a phone call and he'd phone his son and be like, oh, come on, son. All I need is a ride. What could possibly happen? And then, oh, all sorts of things would ensue. Wowzers. (laughs) This week we watched 1976's All the President's Men, a film with some pretty hefty names attached. It was directed by Alan J. Pakula, who produced To Kill a Mockingbird and went on to direct Sophie's Choice, 
both Critical Darlings and Oscar winners. Its screenplay was written by William Goldman, who was responsible for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as well as the screen adaptations of his novels Marathon Man and The Princess Bride. And if you're thinking, I have heard of that name, but not for those reasons, it may be because Goldman acquired a sort of legendary status among film fans for his writing about writing. He based his screenplay on the non-fiction book All the President's Men, written by journalists Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, in which they relate the slow and painstaking uncovering of the Watergate scandal for the Washington Post, which ultimately led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. That reporting also won the Post a Pulitzer Prize. And All the President's Men stars Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, Hal Holbrook and Jason Robards. I mean, if this film came with any more pedigree, it'd be called Fiddlesticks Avocado of Oxford and be running around in a circle at Crufts. So, how did it fare contemporaneously? Well, Goldman won an Oscar, as did Robards. And here's a fun, if not highly controversial fact for you, specifically for you, Jen, actually. In 2015, The Hollywood Reporter polled hundreds of Academy film members, asking them to revote on past controversial decisions. Academy members indicated that, given a second chance, they would award the 1977 Oscar for Best Picture to all the president's men instead of... Bugsy Malone. Rocky. Rocky. Mm-hmm. Rocky. Bugsy Malone never won Best Picture, sorry. Oh, Interesting. Here's some maybe less controversial metrics by which to gauge it. The film eventually grossed $70.6 million at the box office and has a certified fresh 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and is in the Library of Congress, blah, 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 blah. blah. It also, no citation needed, defines the newsroom drama with almost everything that comes after it, both influenced by and compared to it, most notably Spotlight, set at the Boston Globe and The Post, also set at the Washington Post. Here's a couple more fun facts. Ben Bradley Jr., as played by John Slattery in Spotlight, as the name suggests, is the son of Ben Bradley, as played by Jason Robards in All the President's Men. And here's another. The Post is set just a year before All the President's Men. Its publisher, Catherine Graham, is played by Meryl Streep in that film. And here she is played by Chex Notes. Yeah, she's not in it. And I should probably say I have a specific question about women in the film. Indeed, it was one of the reasons that I picked it. But first, a wee bit of plot for anyone who fell into a coma in 1971 and just woke up. When what appears to be a burglary is rumbled at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate building in Washington... Reporter Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, offering perhaps the best argument for bringing back tan corduroy suits, gets sent (laughs) to court to cover the story. When he spots a swanky lawyer in attendance, he smells a rat and is paired by his bosses with a more experienced reporter, Carl Bernstein, to get to the bottom of it. And what they discover is beyond even their wildest expectations. Also, if you've just woken from a coma, thanks for choosing Standard Issue. Try not to learn what social media is. (laughs) Okay, before I go on with some of my more complicated questions, Mickey, Jen, had you seen this before? No, never. No. I had not seen it before either, which I'm surprised by. Okay, so what did we make of it? I have to make an admission of guilt that, well, 
Moderna's guilt, not mine. I started watching it on Thursday in in the post jab convalescence where I should have had cheese and I fell asleep quite a lot and every time I opened my eyes there were men there were basically men shouting at each other and I I can't give you a, a very good yeah right I'm gonna take that as a no Mickey I thought it was excellent I can see why it is classic in the procedural genre it is the most Hannah Dunleavy film I think I have ever watched. It's it's a lot of men talking. It's about American politics and it's set in a newsroom. Dunleavy bingo! Tick, tick, yeah. tick. Yeah, I can absolutely see why you picked it. And yeah, I was, I was surprised I hadn't watched it because it's all stuff that interests me as well. And also screenwriter William Goldman, as you touched on earlier, wrote one of my very favourite films, which is The Princess Bride. Really? What was really mm. interesting, The Princess Bride? So he wrote that and he wrote this? Yeah. Wow. I said that. I said that that up at the top. Sorry. (laughs) Jeff fell asleep during the intro. No, I was listening. (laughs) Sorry. Maybe she only understands the Princess Bride in Northern. What was also really interesting for me as well, and I don't know if either of you two have read it, but obviously I got to talk to Megan Tuey and Jodie Cantor Mm. for their book, She Said, which was the investigation behind bringing Harvey Weinstein to justice. And I said in the interview, which... Listeners, if you haven't listened to, please do look it up. It's a great listen. I said it reads like a thriller, and that is exactly how this plays out, albeit mm. quite a slow-paced sort of low-volume thriller. But, yeah, it's it's gripping. It's oddly gripping, given it is just men talking. Jen, you woke up to exactly what happened <laughs> the whole time. Also, given, because this is what I wanted to ask you, given that you know what the outcome of this is, and therefore, drama comes from the fact that a they can't believe what they keep finding because they have no idea this isn't a case of they found out that Richard Nixon did it and they wanted to prove it this is literally them just poking around in stuff and um, there's a really interesting bit where they go out of conference and there's just like the th- like a couple of senior members of staff in there and they ask for one of theirs I don't think he's even got a name in it, but they asked for one of their sort of their guy's opinion on it. And he says, well, you know, it's unnamed sources. They're not very comfortable. And had they pulled it, I could understand why they would have pulled it Mm -hmm. and not pursued it as a story. So that's to me what kind of the drama comes from. They're very dismissive of those two reporters. You know, maybe a little bit of basis in reality there with some of the ways they do stuff and also what's come out about Bob Woodward afterwards. But... One of the ways they show this is they don't, they're not individuals anymore. They are constantly referred to as Woodstein or Woodstein. Mm. And they are just like, this is this, guys are chasing this story that we don't think will come to anything. Yeah, it's it's excellent. And I think what you just said there about knowing the ending, not killing the drama. Again, exactly the same in She Said. Although at the Mm. time when they wrote it, we weren't sure if Weinstein would, you know, go to trial and go to jail. But he was busted. The story did run. Can I ask a question? Yeah. I feel like there have been maybe lots of films or kind of incidents such as this in recent times uh, with, you know, big exposés and whatever. And there's definitely was a film a few years ago, which I actually haven't seen, but I just wondered, like, how it compares, how this compares to sort of, like, modern films of this genre to you, Hannah. I guess you're talking about Spotlight. Yeah, that was the one I was thinking of, yeah. I <laughs> kind of covered that in the intro. Did you? <laughs> oh, yes. I'm so sorry. Okay. But does it stand up to... How does it compare? I, th- I think it, it sort of... 
it writes the way that these have gone after it. It was the one that was first and that follows very much in its footsteps. I haven't seen the post, which Hannah also mentioned, but Spotlight is maybe they've added a tiny bit more action in Spotlight. There's like, and there's women. There's some women in it. Yeah. Kind of what the joy of all the president's men is, is watching the old fashioned hitting the phones and like shoe leather form of journalism. Which obviously still doesn't exist to some degree, but not in the way... That's how all journalism used to be done. Was it's by dying art, though, isn't it? And I think mm. it, it, there's a really good case to be made by watching all the president's men. One, as to why investigative journalism is so important and needs resources, which it is losing. There is a very few. The Post is still very good at it, Washington Post. The New York Times obviously mm. did lows. And then it's kind of individual journalists who will t go wherever the, they can get the money, the freelance now. But it's also absolutely key as to why Donald Trump was terrified of newspapers. Yeah. Because mm. they, brought, that, they mm. brought down a president. So what, you know, the thing to do then yeah. is to belittle them. They brought down a president and like Bob Woodward had been in his job about nine months when they started. I think that's something that this film really does remind you that they are, they're like basically nobody. And mm. like I say, they sit around in these meetings and go, why is nobody else picking up on these stories? Are we just banging our heads against a brick wall? So I wanted to talk about the treatment of women in this film. And I did make that snarky comment about, she has mentioned Kitty Graham when uh, somebody threatens her down the phone that is the only mention she gets in this Catherine Graham but what I mean by the treatment of women is that Woodstein Bernstein in particular have some highly questionable approaches to getting information out of women you know they pry really openly into the sex lives of their colleagues and they ask one of them to do something that she's really really uncomfortable with Bernstein physically drags another one of his colleagues across the office. And, you know, maybe you could say they're journalists, they understand the importance of this, but, you know, they flirt and they patronise sources, you know, and maybe you could say female journalists would do that. But the one thing that really bothers me or the thing that really sticks out to me is when Bernstein goes to interview that witness in her house and he point blank refuses to take no for an answer mm -hmm. and it makes me really uncomfortable because if his end goal was sex in that scenario, I would condemn that behaviour in the strongest terms. But what she tells him is actually vital. And what he finds yeah. out from her is vital. So I suppose why I picked this film is because I think it asks a really interesting, or asks me a really interesting question, which is, is it okay to behave like this if it serves a higher purpose? It's almost like the journalists, particularly these two journalists or investigative journalists, that investigative bit of the descriptor, mm. They act like police, right? And it's almost like they it they feel it gives them the right to break boundaries a bit like police do as well in like the line of duty. I think it's a very interesting moral conundrum you have just brought up. I don't have an answer, but I agree with you. I felt that was very uncomfortable. And the other bit that I thought was funny was the woman who has had one of the politicians in her apartment where he's mm. clearly trying to flirt with her and he's like, you can't say I was in your apartment. You can't say I was in her, your apartment. He's got a wife and kids and a cat and a dog. He's got a dog and he says it the wrong way around. He says dog and a cat. So yeah, totally. Yeah. But also the way he talks to her on the phone, even though she is a journalist, is so dismissive and mm. so patronising and that's what catches him out. And I was like, good. 
I'm really glad you got caught out there because he's like, oh, you wouldn't possibly say that. And she's like, well, why would it be so bad if you were in my apartment? Why couldn't yeah. I say that? And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. Of course she fucking understands, you dickwad. But yeah, <laughs> it catches him out in the end. And uh, that was the one moment of power I think women got in this film. Apart from the idea of getting past gatekeepers, and the gatekeepers are almost always women, mm. like really feisty secretaries who usually get the upper hand, but, you know, eventually the journalist gets through. I mean, I don't think the film is in itself especially sexist, to be clear. This is just, I think I think the it 70s. is a film of it. It's the <laughs> 70s. Not only is it a film made in the 70s, it's a film about the 70s. So, yeah, I think it's, apart from the absence of, of Catherine Graham, I think, it's more a case of it's showing sexism rather than it, it is sexist. Because basically it's based on these guys' own interpretation of themselves mm-hmm. as well. So clearly that's obvious that now they obviously wouldn't... Well, who knows now because of Woodward. But you know what I mean? They can't claim now that it was a bad interpretation of them. It's based on their own stuff. The screenplay must have been turned round really quickly after Nixon resigned, right? Because he resigned in August 74... And this was out in 76. So for the whole writing, clearing, editing, filming, it must have been a super fast turnaround of gathering all that information together, which in itself is a pretty impressive feat, Mm. I think. Yeah. The book covers the entire period where this basically covers the period between them stumbling across the story and them making the active decision that they've got Nixon and they're going to go for him. Loads more plays out. And we just see that coming up on the wire at the end. So the book goes on for way longer. But yeah, I mean, I don't know at what point William Goldman got to see a copy of it before he started writing. But yes, I agree that, yeah, it is a quick turnaround. I also have a fun fact. You might already know this, Hannah, but I have a fun fact. And that is the security guard who came across the burglars in Watergate plays himself in the film. I thought that was quite nice. Really? Yeah. I, I don't know if you noticed too, there are two quite famous faces in, in that. The the coppers who turn up all dressed in like the the hats and the, the Hawaiian shirts. One of those was F. Murray Abraham and one of the burglars was uh, Uncle Junior. Dominic. Oh, was it? She and Hazy, yeah. So should we move on to the question? Jen, feel free to... I'm just going to say you both seem quite convinced, so I'll say rated. <laughs> We've persuaded her. Jen, I'm going to put a warning up that says, did you read this article before you retweeted, <laughs> essentially? I would say absolutely, definitely rated. Agreed. It's rated. Jen, what are we going to be dozing through next week? <laughs> it's 2006's Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, man. Alan Arkin. Yes. What a joy. Yeah. What, a, what, what an inspiration for my late 70s, early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women. <laughs>